You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. today's podcast we're going to flip the script and rather than taking sponsorship to help promote the podcast we're sponsoring the work that Bill Borman is doing the wonderful work that he's doing to support rough sleepers in his area he's collecting all types of things to help them in their community from sleeping bags to mats and also cooking food on a regular basis If you want to help Bill, you can find him on Facebook or reach out to me and I can put you in contact with him. Any small donation or help is really welcomed. And with that in mind, on today's episode, guess who we have? You're right, Bill Borman. I've been following Bill for some time now um, from social talent, uh, the work that he's done there on the the platform, um, to actually his presentations uh, and just the general great work that he does around diversity and inclusion. Um, and he really is a wonderful figure within the talent acquisition space uh, and a real great guy to know. So it is an absolute privilege to get him on the show today uh, and hear his thoughts around neurodiversity. And, and I guess broader than just that subject, which is great. Uh, it, it's a real, real uh, great privilege to have Bill on. Bill Borman. Welcome to the podcast. Bill, we've been chatting some time about getting you on here. Really pleased to have you on. If you'd like to tell the audience, for those who who don't know you, I'm not sure how many that will be, but if you'd like to tell them who you are, what you do, what you're about. Yeah, so my name's Bill. I'm a um, recovering recruiter um, in that I've worked in and around the recruiting and talent acquisition space for about 35 years. I currently work with technology startups in normal times on um, product, um, marketing, positioning, and so on. I work with investors on where to invest and getting companies investor ready. And I work with PE companies on which companies they should be looking at buying. I also work with direct hiring companies, global organizations on the technology they should buy and how they should deploy it. And I speak at lots of conferences and do lots of research and all that kind of good stuff. Plus, I run True, which is and founded True 10 years ago, which is the Recruiting Unconference. Well, we have about 100, 100 events a year across 36 countries. Brilliant. And so it's interesting, Bill, that I, um, about two years ago, I came out of kind of the supplier side. And one of the first, well, the first event that I went to that really started to get me going on this journey was True in Manchester. Um, and I found the event so amazing because I met some fantastic people and it was that kind of event where by the end of the day you know lots of people you didn't know before um but also I've been you know I've been not following you around Bill but just inadvertently following you around you know social talent your training there of course I've done that uh and I've seen and met you at lots of events and and we've spoken before and interviewed and and I think what's uh what's fascinating is our, our journeys 
uh, kind of colliding in the sense of what we're talking about today, I guess, uh, neurodiversity. So uh, what I'm really interested to hear from you, Bill, um, is what neurodiversity means to you um, and what you think of the term and how it impacts your life. Yeah, so I think it means a whole um, a whole lot of diff- different things, really. Um, in that I, I, I perhaps view it a bit differently to other people in that the more that I've learned about um, different abilities and, and different ways in which you can support people, the biggest thing for me is looking at everyone as being unique. Right? You know, everyone's wired slightly differently. Everybody's unique. So I'm, I'm not massively into special categories other than ways in which it might help you to access resources, information or contacts that you might need. It can be helpful in that respect. But I think we actually have to um, really treat everybody as unique and accept that everyone is going to have, have different needs. And, and they don't need an they don't need a label or a condition to require something unique. I think we all require something unique and different from a from a workplace or from work or from life in general. Brilliant. And I think that's really nicely described. Uh, and yeah, I suppose it's like a fingerprint, isn't it? We, we all have different fingerprints and we all have um, brains that work very differently indeed. And we've had conversations around the subject, you know, when we've been at events, um, and broadly around uh, diversity uh, and belonging as a whole piece. So, Bill, what? How do you think uh, the, the neurodiversity or, or the concept um, of being neuro different? If we do look at, um, you know, the way the society impacts um, some people who br- whose brains are wired perhaps significantly differently, how yeah. how has that impacted you and your life um, and your family? I guess. Uh, or, or the people that you work with and the work that you do? Well, massively through family. For me, it's really been an education process. So it's been an education process through points of reference. And I think that's what most people are missing um, in that I, I, I've got a belief that most people are inherently good. Um, you know, I trust till I'm disappointed by people. And I think when you when you take that approach, most people will try and do the right thing. They don't want to make someone's work uncomfortable or bar them from employment or any of the things which are the um, natural outcomes of some of the workplace behaviours that we have or, or life behaviours that we have. You know, I don't think people deliberately want to make people feel uncomfortable or awkward or or like they don't fit in. But we, we're really programmed into a version of normal, especially when if you start off with the with the education system, a version of the way in which people should be. Um, and, and you can apply that to a whole load of things, neurodiversity, gender, wh- wh- whatever you, introversion, whatever you want to look at. There's kind of a, this um, fictitious normal that exists where everybody's saying, right, okay, this is how you have to be if you want to fit in, if you want to um, toe the line, if you want to be successful. Th- this is what we're trying to produce you to be. Um, and I think that's what really causes lots of problems uh, because people, one, have a perception of what normal is. So either they feel abnormal in themselves because they don't quite fit that box and they're constantly being told they don't fit that box. Um, or it, or it's a case of uh, systems are built for the perception of normal, whether that's recruitment systems, talent acquisition, performance management, whatever it is. 
in the HR space, it's built towards a perception of normal, um, and a, lots of people don't then fit in that normal box. Um, might sound like you know that that's that that's what I I feel is um, the the total push for conformity is what creates so much workplace stress and problems and once we remove that a lot of the time the way we remove that is points of reference is getting to know more people whoever that might be you know you know sarah jane you know joe lockwood you know a lot of the people that i do you get points of reference who enable you to try and see things through their eyes and the thing i've really learned um and i learned this one actually from some young some young people who i know are of friends of my children beginning with the transgender community which was one of the areas that I started looking at initially um was really um once once you start looking at how that perception of normal impacts people and the fact that very often if we let, let's take something like pronouns people look at things like pronouns and say well why do these people need all these different pronouns? Why do they need different names? Why do they need X, Y, and Z? And then when you talk talk to them, you actually realise that these pronouns and that sense of belonging is for them, it's not for us. And once you take that attitude of actually it's for other people and it's for me to uncover what you need to be successful and everyone's unique, then you take a very different approach. Does that make sense or am I well, waffling on too much with that? Theater. No, no, that that makes real sense. And it, it's funny because I was um, sat uh, talking with, uh, at an event, talking with, with Nancy, um, who works uh, extensively within uh, the space of, of neurodiversity. Uh, yeah. And she, I use the words um, neurodivergent. Um, and she uh, kind of said, I, uh, you know, I don't like the word neurodivergent. Um, and I went, is, is it not the correct word, though, to use? And she said, well, actually, she works a lot within the the, the prison sector um, and actually divergent as a term has other connotations. um, And that actually, therefore, using a word like neurodivergent um, will automatically have very negative connotations. So using neurodifferent um, or using just neurodiverse. And I guess that's a perfect example there of, of what you're saying. It's. You, you know, it's the individual that gets to choose. So if somebody wants to say, I'm neurodivergent, yeah, but it's like, that's within their right? power. It's really not for me. So um, if we're talking about gender, if you if you go, if you elect to go by the pronoun of they, that's not for me, that's for you. That's for you to get a sense of where you belong and what you need rather than me, to, and me just to respect that. So I think that's the whole point is just respecting um, differences in everybody. Right, you know, differences in everybody, and not having this perception of normal. This is normal. This is, and anyone who doesn't fit that normal box, um, is going to be wrong in, in some way. That actually works both ways because you get the same thing as somebody who might say, "Oh, well, you know, if, if you talk about people who are autistic, people immediately think, oh, it's going to be Rain Man. You, you must be really good at counting or whatever it is, right?'" Um, so you get positive and negative associations that I think we need to get rid of and say it's really about getting to know the person and that's it and everybody's unique. Um, and, and we don't need, uh, we need points of reference to understand 
things that we can do and how different people might view the world or challenges we might put in. So it's more about broadening your points of reference that just make you think differently. And the wider your group of points of reference, the better you're equipped to deal with or look at situations. And do you think that is best um, looked upon within your current organisation uh, if you know if the opportunity is there, i.e., you have a couple of thousand people within your workforce, or do you think it, it, you know you you should be looking beyond the four walls of your organisation first to get uh, the wider perspective to then inform the thinking around your strategy? I think it's the wide, I think it's the wider perspective, right? So one of the things that I've learned is where I had a lot of knowledge gaps. So you tend to have. Um, knowledge experience and empathy in your own circle um and this is particularly true if you look at any any kind of level of of, of mental health you know if you have um something like uh, depression in your family or anxiety or whatever it might be it tends to run in family so if you're in that family you get you have a first hand up front knowledge and appreciation of that if you're not in that family you don't have a point of reference so if your circle all looks the same, um, and we can talk about race, class, whatever you want to talk about, if your circle looks roughly the same and are people like you, your perception of normal is based on that. That is your point of reference. So I think what we really have to do is is challenge, look at our own circles and our points of reference and say, actually, how narrow are we? And... Everything from social media to the way society is driven is to is connecting people who are more and more like you rather than more and more diverse. And we can look at that from loads of angles, whether we want to talk about um, neurodiversity, whether we want to talk about gender, whether we want to talk about class, education, um, economic earning, whatever it is. Everybody's driven into their own box and their knowledge or points of reference are just people like them and what they know rather than broader circles. So we really have to work on, uh, I think everybody should work on broader circles and making themselves a bit more uncomfortable in order to understand other people better. That's interesting. And I agree. What I would say, Bill, is you're somebody who is um, hugely networked. You are massively engaged and um, you're really committed um, to learning with within whatever um, sphere of interest you're looking at, so um, you you know you will go out, put yourself out there to educate yourself as best you can. And I, I you know, I've I've been I've seen conversations you've had with other people where you will challenge others, and you will happily be challenged yourself. Now, and that is brilliant. But how then does that translate? Do you think? To, to the rest of the world how how do you know maybe lonely hr manager or recruitment manager who, who maybe isn't as widely networked as you and and doesn't have the ability to um to to test their knowledge uh, perhaps in the same way that you do uh, and maybe they need to right but but maybe that's not going to happen well, what do you think is the answer for those people it's just broadening your horizons right it's broadening your horizons it's looking for other things that you can go to so uh, uh, something that really sticks out in my mind is Joe Lockwood ran True Inclusion um, last year. Um, seems years ago now, but <laughs> ran a True Inclusion, which was an inclusion event. And um, and when we talk about people uh, fitting into categories, it was the first time I turned up on a, at an event 
and um, I felt like a complete outsider, right, for, for a whole load of reasons. So there, there, there was people there um, speaking for their own or running tracks or sessions for their own, um, their, from their own viewpoint. So you, you might have had people from the LGBTQ community, um, transgender, um, different levels of ability and disability, um, Lisa Bulldog is there with her, um, her listening dog. You know, all kinds of people with very um, specific and some, and in some cases, visual reasons for why they were talking about that. And if you've been at a diversity and inclusion conference, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I was kind of like, I don't fit into any of these boxes, so I don't know whether I can actually make my comments valid or my viewpoint is valid or my questions are valid. Now, actually, from the people in that room nothing could have been further from the truth they kind of wanted to say like well why are you interested in this when it's not directly your community and they were, were very interested in that in how you engage with people and i took from that that actually you've got to go and push yourself into these places or environments or have conversations with people and the biggest thing you have to lose is um this is a, a bit of data that was given to me from some trusted research but it really struck me like a lightning moment i heard it a couple of years ago but 75 percent of people won't talk to somebody who is visually disabled particularly in wheelchairs they won't speak to them um and when you go into that and ask why it isn't a case of they feel that they're going to catch something or there's something terrible it's a fear of saying the wrong thing and offending right and, and i think that's our on a human level that's our biggest barrier that if we see someone who we perceive as being different or different to us or different to the the uh, the people that we know we're frightened that what we're going to say is actually going to be offensive to them or i'm going to say the wrong thing or i'm going to be stupid um so i think the biggest thing everyone has to do is actually overcome that i've discovered that that doesn't happen you know i've said stuff and people say well you know we need to have a chat about that um that's perhaps not the right way to look at it but um it's a reality of not having that fear that i'm going to say the wrong thing and so the only way i'm going to um know or educate myself or move myself forwards is to have a conversation and, and if it's something i shouldn't ask then somebody's going to tell me that and, and it's never happened to me so far um I talk to people from lots of communities. So I think that's the barrier for most people is fear of, say, it isn't a case of being um, massively prejudiced or anything like that. It is a case of I'm frightened that I'm going to say the wrong thing or be offensive or I don't really know how to handle this situation. Therefore, I'm going to remove myself from it as quickly as possible. And you physically see people do that. Physically you know, lots of the times I've been out with different people and I've seen people physically removing themselves from conversations or environments because they're visibly uncomfortable having that conversation because they have this fear that they're going to say the wrong thing. Uh, well, and I absolutely get that. And I think the stat um, makes complete sense as well, um, uh, which is sad. But I, I, like you say, I, you can see it visually. Uh, you can see it happening. Well, how many times, if you think about it, if you think about it, how many times when you've had your conversations in the past or when you've been pre presenting, you've been very open about it, um, 
and you've talked about yourself, how many times have you seen people uncomfortable to ask you questions or probe or try and get something because they go, oh, I don't really know. You, you physically see that, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And if we translate that to the recruitment environment, um, you know, you've, you've got somebody sat in front of you for an interview. Now you translate that stat to the chance of them succeeding. It's going to be low. Right? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, um, you know, Sarah Jane Harvey. So Sarah and I are good friends. We've done a lot of speaking together. I think we met each other at exactly the same time as you met Sarah at crew at the RL 100. Yeah. Um, and one of the, and, um, Sarah, Sarah and I always, always get on. And, and some of the things that she said to me that really, really strike is this sense of um, how people, how people react to her or, 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 or what people do. And, and I think we, you know, if we can challenge that, if we can go out in the world and say, look, it's here, um, you're not going to offend people. You need to have conversations. You need to ask questions. If you're curious about saying you need to ask it, because this is the, way, the only way you understand it. But the thing that really struck me the more I got to know Sarah was I thought in my recruitment guide 101, and I would in, I've been a recruitment trainer, so I would include things I've taught to recruiters, junior recruiters going into the industry to, to fairly senior recruiters. Um, recruitment 101, the basic rules of interviewing one-to-one situation tells me I would not hire or give a job opportunity to someone like Sarah on the basic rules 101 because you look at things like eye contact, um, concentration, um, uh, able to stay focused on one answer. All those kind of things are the things that would immediately, you know, you're taught in interviewing, if someone won't maintain eye contact with you, there is something suspicious or dodgy. They're, They're being dishonest with you. Right, you know, you we're taught that we're yeah. bred that. I can remember hearing that eye contact, firm handshake. You know, never mind if someone is particularly averse to touch, human touch of shaking hands or whatever. Um, eye contact, firm handshake, all that kind of stuff is the recruitment and the careers advice 101, right? That's in the very first recruitment book. So, there's no um, it's very difficult to deprogram and say, actually, that might not be a problem. Or if you can't answer my question, but you can draw me a picture or do me some, that might not be a problem. That might not be a problem. It might be a different way we can do this. It doesn't have to be this um, sit-down interrogation. You know, really, our recruiting processes are built like Game of Thrones. It's not the best candidates who are successful. It's the last one alive at the end of an arduous process. And we we put these challenges in there to really. Um, and that, that just eliminates so many people who would otherwise be great employees. And that's recruitment 101. That's forgetting about accessibility of can you actually see the website and apply for a job or anything like that. So in my profession, you know, um, in, in, in recruiting, we really have to change that mindset of how we find out who the person is. And we don't put those, we remove those barriers. And we let, I really believe, and I work with some organisations on letting people choose their means of applying actually let them choose having lots of options let them choose their means of applying and see what comes back so uh, th- that i was i had something in my mind i wanted to ask and you've literally just uh, you've you've set it up for me which is you know you you know tech really well hr tech recruitment tech yeah if we look at 
different uh, types uh, of assessment. For example, I think, and this, this is loose information that I've been given, but that maybe gamified assessment might not be brilliant for those people who are autistic. Not making an overall generalisation here. Um, yeah. Or might be brilliant for people who are autistic, but they might end up getting the wrong job. Well, yeah. You know, because you, you don't have to make... Right, what, what This bit, which is another important mindset, I think, for people. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about autism we're talking about race we're talking about gender whatever it is some people will be successful and some people won't we've just got to make sure that the grounds for them being successful and the grounds for them being unsuccessful even when they're doing the job is not related to um anything from um a ability anything to do with anything physical anything to do with gender, anything to do with race. We have to make sure that people are purely successful or unsuccessful based on performance. So we have to make sure our screening and our games are actually based on very open models. And this is part of the gamification, you know. Um, someone with anxiety, if I looked at um, my daughter in particular, Alice, if you know, if, if you had a game or a test, you're going to go pieces on that. Yeah. They'll go to pieces on that unless you set it up in the right way, um, because it is that hyper um, challenging environment that not everybody rises to, and also sometimes the wrong people are successful in that yes. with those things. <laughs> you know, the wrong people are successful. So um, I think we need to um, look beyond. We need to really examine what tools and technology we're using and who that might exclude how do you judge a video interview right you, you tell me 101 you're doing a video a, a, what's the first thing you look at you know what do you think about the person who doesn't look at the camera and is looking around the room and maybe stimming a little bit and hyper nervous by that environment right you're gonna eliminate that candidate from your selection yeah whereas you could just get a voice why do you need to see them why can't you give an option of voice or written yeah so there's so so many different ways for me it's much more give you a piece of work to do see how you get on with it right so so hang on a minute let let me just this would be interesting you've got a company that's nothing to do with diversity by the way that's to do with everything yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's how we get Absolutely. But if you're if you're an organization, Bill, and you've got this piece of technology or organizational solution, whatever it is, right, they're going to say, right, we'll charge you X amount for, I don't know, a thousand uses of this bit of technology by candidates. Are you then going to go and speak to 10 different other variations of technology or solution so that you've got the full gamut on offer, which is ideally what you would have? You're probably not because it'd be too expensive. So do you think there's an opportunity for organisations getting together um, around this subject? No, I'll, 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 I'll tell you where our ch- I'll tell you where our challenge in this is. All we do with digitalisation is we reduce, we try to reproduce either dis- we've either tried to automate decisions that we've made in a human way of the same way as we've always made those decisions we've just tried to automate them that doesn't matter whether we're using data algorithms whatever it is or process we've tried to reproduce what we already do make the make the same decisions as we already make even though we know our hiring processes are significantly unfit for purpose if we look at the data anywhere so what we've tried to do is reproduce 
the same candidates being successful just justified by some kind of test or some kind of assessment. I think we need to rethink the whole hiring process. We need to re we need to rethink how we do this stuff, right? Because all we're doing is all, all we're doing is automating or building technology to do what we already do. And I don't blame the technology vendors for that, by the way. I work with a lot of them, but I don't blame the technology vendors because technology vendors can only build technology that people will buy and companies are risk averse. Yeah. And but do you think that's going to change? So, uh, you know, if we relook at it, uh, is there a point in even relooking it? Do we just have to accept the fate of it is what it is? Um, I think there is some potential for change. I think some organisations are having a go at that. I think um, if you, you look at things like diversity and inclusion, I think a lot of the time we're driven by the wrong motives as organisations. Our motives are to put a badge above our door that we're doing this thing or we're taking this initiative rather than make things better. But I think there is an opportunity. I think there are some organisations. I think there are some people who do want to do things better. It's just where do you start? You know, if, if you're talking about hiring process, do you start with gender? Do you start with race? Do you start with class? Do you start with education? Do you start with neurodiversity? Where do you, where do you begin when you can identify so many problems in the process? The answer is you start with a blank sheet of paper and you start as if this was day one and we were re we looked at the task in hand, which is to hire the right people, and we looked at a process that would deliver that as if we had no previous knowledge and we're starting again. That is the only way we fix any of this. Brilliant. And and I'm I buy into that. Now my where I think the biggest challenge will come is organizations are kind of understandably are still reaching into the box to pull out the job advert they used last time the time before the time before the time before and with that job advert is the same job description there is no time there is no time right this is the challenge so if you work in talent acquisition here's a simple number for you the average length of service with the company is 2.4 years that goes down between two and three months each year and has done for the last seven years right so length of service with the company so what that tells me is if your company stays Let's forget about coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. If your company stays at the same size, the same headcount number for the next 12 months, you will be hiring more people next year than you did this year, purely because length of service is shrinking, more people are going to leave, right? So whatever happens, you're going to be hiring more people. Headcounts are not growing. If anything, they're shrinking. So what that means is as an individual recruiter, well, you have the power to make the most difference, certainly on your world, not necessarily on the technology, but on your world, the power of one. Um, you're going to be busier, which doesn't give you the time to actually make the changes that you need to make to what you do. That's the problem. We don't have the time to implement bedding and we're risk averse to actually the only way we're going to find out if we decide to change the way that we hire a cohort of people. So let's say it's our graduates next year and we hire 20 graduates a year and your boss comes back to you and says, Theo, let's find a new way of hiring people. Let's change the criteria. Let's not have a degree. Da, da, da. The only way you're going to know whether that works is probably going to be in 12 or 18 months time, according to how those people are performing. Right. You could tell on the upfront metrics. Yes, we got more people or. It was easier to hire. We reduced our time to hire, cost per hire, whatever. But you're not going to know whether those people are successful until they're embedded in an organisation. So changing recruiting takes time to know that it's successful. And people are fearful 
fearful of getting that bit wrong. Yeah, and I, and I think time is probably a, a good one, <laughs> a good one to end on on that basis. And yeah. um, I think uh, if organisations could give not just recruitment uh, recruiters and and HR managers more time, but actually hiring managers, because I think you started with a really good point that people generally do want to do the right thing. Um, but if you tell a hiring manager, um, you know, do the right thing, but we're not going to give you the time to do the right thing, i.e., you know, to put better tests in place or to spend more time with individuals who may be on the spectrum, who may need their work adjusted uh, or, or anybody else yeah. who, who may need their work adjusted for whatever reason. If you're not giving those people the time, how can we expect them to realistically make a significant difference? So I think time um, is probably a good a good thing that would really solve so many problems or at least get us on the journey to, to solving some of those problems. Yeah, that's cool. Brilliant. So, Bill, um, part of the reason why I wanted to get you on as well is because you've been doing some uh, incredible work locally that if people follow you on Facebook, they'll know, um, and that's supporting the homeless uh, in your area. Um, Wait, can I correct you there? Can I stop Oh, yes, sorry. Do it. Um, nobody's homeless. Some people are houseless. If you, and this is a lot of the people who I come into contact with daily in my life as it stands at the moment. If you um, are in a sleeping bag or in a tent underneath a subway, underneath a motorway bridge, that is your home. It doesn't stop being your home. It just means you haven't got a house in the conventional sense. Now, that might sound like semantics. No, no to me, it's a fair point. You still have a home, and I have to respect that as your home when I enter into that with your dinner or your breakfast or wherever it might be, right? So, and the homeless also includes a whole bunch of people who might be sofa surfing or any of that kind of stuff. Um, everybody has a home. For some people, that's temporary and it's one night. But everybody has a home. So a number of people in our society, an increasingly large number, don't have a house. That is a different thing and needs a different approach. So we can't ever think about homeless. For me, the term you'll hear me use quite a lot, somebody asked me about it today, um, why I use that is rough sleeper, Yeah. Um, which, which is the group that I work with. Rough sleeper is somebody who's either um, sleeping on the street in a doorway, in the way you might um, recognise them, um, in a tent, increasingly lots of it. We're discovering more and more encampments, people who've lived and um, been living in encampments two or three years um, have never accessed services or help they've always been able to have cash work and so on that work's disappearing and they need feeding now it's really increasing the numbers and and, and bringing them to the fore um so you get different levels of um rough sleeping uh, and different and, and very different and unique unique requirements but um Let's not ever think of people as homeless. Thank you. And I won't in future, that's for sure. Um, but Bill, I, I think the um, I think by following you, if people don't on Facebook, they are able to um, actually learn from the, the experiences that you get in from, from offering that help. It's because I'm learning, man. You know, I, I, I still, I've gone from um, knowing, same as everybody else, really, just people I saw on the street, give them a bit of spare change, buy them a sandwich or whatever. Um, to understanding this um, chaotic life, which brings in all kinds of things, whether that's um, mental health or addiction. I can deal with things like how you order scripts for methadone and why that 
might be important. Um, I understand more and more um, mental health issues, medical issues. I'm needing to get to know, understanding more about how you access services, more about universal credit and all the kind of problems that brings, the five or six different levels of housing that might be available to different people on it, or accessing the next steps. And we do all that by delivering meals because food is a good common way to break down. Um, I understand how homeless groups maybe sleep, uh, uh, rough sleepers in the same um, door doorway regard they the people they stay with as family so there's so many things that you you learn about these communities that i've had to learn as we go along as well as cooking for up to 70 people delivering the meals breakfast dinner whatever it is um we've had to the logistics of doing that had to learn all that on the hoof so everybody's learning all of the time you, you just have to be open to um just listening and not make any assumptions about stuff. So if people want to help, I guess there's two things that go in my mind. One way is to see what you're doing and actually to think about, well, how can I do it within my local area um, in, in yeah. a small way or a big way? But the other thing, uh, which when you recognize somebody is doing something incredible, is you help them um, because you can see the direct impact um, that it has. Um, often there's yeah. concerns, my concerns, giving money to a charity, for example, a bit global. You don't know, you don't see the end result of, of what happens. So no, no, how no. can people help? Yeah, so, so let, me, let, me tell, yeah let, me, let me tell you what my biggest challenge is. And what I can tell you is I'm talking about Northampton, right? Probably everyone listening in, however many people that might be, live in a town. Some of you live in a city and you see something different, but you live in a town and we're not a massive population town in the Midlands and rough sleepers between the people who are currently in the hotels for self-isolation, which has been pushed by the council, um, and those who haven't accessed or have had to leave for reasons of addiction or behaviour or whatever, whatever it might be, and those who lived out of area therefore weren't registered rough sleepers and didn't qualify. Um, we're talking probably in total of those people around about 130, and we have 18 night shelter spaces. So that gives you an idea of the extent of the problem that we're only just beginning to understand. Um, so you can help in your local area. There'll be local charities, people like me out doing stuff. Um, but if you want to look at what I view as my, the biggest thing on my mind right now is we're dealing with the day-to-day. -day. We're getting the food, we're getting some good support, we're getting meals out, we're getting that done. Um, but at the end of this uh, social exclusion um, could be in three weeks, five weeks is probably closer to the bet I'm having five to six weeks when the balloon lifts and everyone's allowed out again. It's going to be about 95 people coming out of hotels for whom everything that I talked about being their home, their tent, their sleeping bag, their kit has all been removed, right? And gone away because when they went into the hotels, they left it where it was and five or six weeks later, it's going to have been removed by all kinds of different people or not be fit for purpose when they come out because it hasn't been out and we want to replace all of that so we need a hundred of everything um so thanks for your donation i know you sent me some sleeping mats but everything from sleeping mats tents is my big one at the moment two-man tents not pop-ups so something a little bit more sturdy so tents um i've got about 100 sleeping bags now i'm getting close to 100 mats um four changes of underwear, 
socks, gloves, uh, hoodies, all that kind of stuff. I want to build the kit up. So if anyone wants to do anything, just reach out to me on Facebook or reach out to Theo. Theo knows the address and Amazon Prime. It's like Father Christmas when it turns up. I'm, I'm really excited about what they're going to bring. I'm getting lots of stuff. And just in my front room, I'm building up a collection of 100 of everything so that, you know, hopefully we'll get a lot of those people through the council outreach are doing a great job. We'll, let's say, half those people get into social housing. We want to be ready for the other half to say, right, it's going to be tough. You've been in a hotel for five, six weeks. You're now back out on the street. Here's some stuff to get you started again. And that's really the best way people can help me it's brilliant it is really brilliant and i urge people to, to to help if they can um it'd be amazing bill if after well you know obviously this would be a continuation this is not something that just kind of starts and stops but maybe there's a maybe there's a yeah i will i'll never have this up i look on it like this i will never have this opportunity again yeah right? um, and it is an opportunity it has been an opportunity for me to learn and you know it's been a lot steeper and a lot bigger learning curve than i ever anticipated um, but I'm never going to have time again. So it's not like I never had that phase where I left university and went and helped the Red Cross somewhere or helped some refugees in Syria or did any of that kind of, um, those kind of good things that people do. So this is my opportunity. It's been five coming up for six weeks. It'll probably be at the end of it, I don't know, 12 weeks or 15 weeks, however long it takes until the balloon bursts where, this could be 100% of my focus and not employ a brand, not time to hire, not recruiting, not technology. This could be 100% of my focus and I'll never have that opportunity again. So um, I'm looking on it as uh, a real privilege to be out there and be doing it. And I'll be able to look up back on my coronavirus time and say, yeah, this is what I did. Yeah, truly incredible. Thank you, Bill. Um, yeah, really admire what you're doing. And uh, really pleased I was able to get you on. It's an absolute pleasure as always. Um, and I will continue watching and, and supporting in any uh, small way that I can. That's great. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. You've been listening to Neurodiversity at Work, available on all good podcast hosts. Please do sign up now, like, share and comment. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.